Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. And she certainly had a lot of contacts as well, and she she knew how to create the contacts, didn't she? She was very charming. She was very charming. If you met Alice, I've been told, I feel like I've met her, but she's the most interesting woman I've ever met. You would never forget her. In fact, Frances, Frankie, her older sister, asked her one day, how come you're so popular? And she said, well, I don't know, I never see anyone for more than 10 minutes because she was just constantly talking and she was a positive, she was an absolute life force. And that was the key to the success of the garage. And she would have had to have been a life force and very brave to make something like this a success in those days. I mean, I, I know of only two garages in Victoria at this point that uh, either run by all women or employ women and they only came about really around the interest in Alice Anderson in the first place. In fact, the book was going to be called The Only All-Girls Garage in Australia until these other garages popped up. So still it's a novelty to have a woman mechanic, let alone a woman running an all-women-run garage. Now, um, I came along to the book launch, which was fantastic. It was a bit of a dress-up party, and <laughs> you, you had, <laughs> which is a lot of fun. Nineteen twenties, of course. <laughs> yeah, and you had a lot of lot of the photos around of, of Alice and uh, the other women that worked at the garage. And as, as soon as I walked in and I, I saw all the photos, I mean, there was one photo of, of her and another woman in a romantic. I think you you uh, called it. Now it was pretty obvious that Alice and the other women were lesbians, um, but they wouldn't have been able to come out publicly and, and say that at that time, would they? No, not not in a way that was accepted. Although cross dressing was kind of accepted as long as you didn't look too mannish, because you had the flappers, but you also had women dressing in ties and suits and with their short hair. And it was kind of like playing dress ups in a way. And look, I don't have absolute proof that Alice was lesbian because there were no known women she had relationships with. And not all of the garage girls were lesbians, but there's certainly some that were. And there were certainly a lot of clients that were and close friends of Alice that were. So I'd be surprised if she wasn't. But some um, relatives of hers are not happy with that idea. And they said that she, she dressed the way she did because she had to running a garage. So the women either wore overalls if they were doing mechanical stuff or if they were chauffeuring, which was a big thing in those days because the wealthiest of people didn't drive their own cars. Oh, no, they had a chauffeur or chauffeurs in the 
case of a woman. And so Alice knew that she had to do the, outdo the men in any way to even have vague attempt at success. So she had them very neatly dressed in uniforms that looked a little bit like the soldier uniforms. She had the driving caps and the gloves and the breeches and the boots and gaiters and they had white shirts and ties. And so they were very neat and the, the, the papers used to talk about them being kind of feminine and, and efficient. Like there was always that fine line. They were trying to say how uh, they would use flowery language around them. But once I really dug into finding out about some of the garage girls, there were some incredibly butch ones that even photos that I've put up on my Alice Anderson garage girl page, I've had people writing to me and saying, no, they're men. They're not women. So, and and Alice was constantly mistaken for a boy, and she would she'd even be pulled up and wondered if they she'd even had a license because she looked too young. Being being female, she looked like a young boy in her early twenties. Mm. So, with, with the with the letters, and you were saying about the family not not wanting to disclose too much about her personal life. What was the content of some of the letters that survived? There were letters that she'd written to her mother and one of them's very interesting. If you've got your gaydar on, which I always have, you could really read into some of the things she was saying that suggested that one, she'd, she'd say, look, I can't possibly marry a man while I'm too busy running this garage and paying off debts. And I'd have to meet a man that was, you know, a darn sight better than me, then that would be very hard to find. And so what, mother, if I wear a ring at work? You know, there was a man that was very much in love with me and I'm not going to name him because he's gone into state now, but it was the scream of the garage when the women found out that, he was um, in love with me. So there's all these things that, and she said, look, I've probably covered you in confusion, mother, but I'm, I will still be your loyal daughter, that sort of stuff. And she, very early on in the piece, before she'd even opened up the garage, she met this woman called Jessie Macbeth, who ran a private hospital around the corner in Glenferry Road. And She was the matron of the hospital and her companion, Kate Griffiths, was a nurse and they were understood as a lesbian couple and they lived together and they worked together and they really, particularly Jessie Macbeth, took Alice under her wing because Alice really got time out of the garage. It was was run 24-7. She could get a phone call and have to... um, you know, with a breakdown or something and have to get them into the garage or she would get a phone call at any time to say that someone needed to be chauffeured somewhere. So to keep an eye on the garage, to keep it running and to save money, she built this tiny little bedroom off the office and so that's where she was. And sometimes she wouldn't get to bed till 2 or 3 in the morning and then she'd be up again. But she was young and had lots of energy but every now and again, she would go around to Jessie Macbeth's hospital, Lancewood Hospital, and as a bolt hole, and she'd be looked after there and be given a good hot meal because she barely had time to cook. She had a, a, a sort of a makeshift little kitchen where, you know, there was just one little gas jet, I think, that she would boil up 
hot water with and boil an egg or cook a couple of chops and that's she didn't have time to really think too much about her own welfare so Jessica Macbeth was kind of like the the lesbian mother if you like and Alice's mother couldn't bear her (laughs) she felt usurped and she certainly wasn't accepting Alice's mother was a lady and she certainly wasn't accepting of her daughter's chosen career and shall we say lifestyle I think you were saying in the book that quite a few letters were destroyed, weren't they? Or, and they, they were probably the ones that were disclosing things about her sexuality or lifestyle. But I did discover things in that archive, Francis Derham's archive at Melbourne University. It's since been catalogued, but it was a wonderful adventure just to pick up things that I very strongly sense had not been touched since Alice's death that, you know, there was a huge grief in the family about her untimely death. There was a bit of a mystery around the circumstances of her death as well. I remember finding a little folded up piece of paper and I opened it up and I was very familiar with Alice's handwriting by now. And one of them was written in pen and that was a poem by, you might, you're the philosopher, you probably know him. Anyway, there there was, um, she written that in ink and then there was another piece of paper she'd written in pencil that if it's not a love letter to another woman I'll eat my hat because it was this private and inside that all wrapped around it there was a little photo of her in her car and so I think she was in love with the woman but that was never made public and being only 29 and being very busy being in control of this garage, she probably didn't have a lot of time for personal relationships. Her One of her sisters did uh, was interviewed and said she absolutely wasn't a lesbian, Alice wasn't, but and, and she talked about a woman coming on to her when she worked up at the Marupna for a while at the canning factory there and she was quite horrified at the idea. And she said that Alice would bring, you know, the occasional woman home and introduce to the family and uh, they were usually quite butch. One of them had a motorbike and I think was a science student at, at Melbourne University. And she said, but then all of a sudden they'd be dropped as friends, according to the sister. And so I think what happened to Alice happened to me, that she suddenly realised that these women were after her and she wasn't at all interested. But... Personally, I would beg to differ on that one. (laughs) Yeah, well, perhaps she was just like a lot of people and had fairly short-term relationships, you know, that would would fit in with what you're saying. Yes, well, and she was set up to have a very private life in a very public capacity. Women didn't really traditionally have public lives. They stood behind their men. They took on their husband's name but having that little boudoir which is apparently not much bigger than a toilet and had a single bed and a tiny little bedside table and an excuse for a wardrobe because she didn't have many clothes I think she had she owned two dresses for weddings and funerals otherwise she just wore men's style clothes so it wasn't like she only wore her overalls <laughs> in the garage she she would wear her chauffeur uniform or you know her breeches and around the place and when she first walked into the Lyceum club they thought she was the paper boy because she had a cap on and her boyish gear so that's how she was known you know <laughs> mm. 
So what was the most exciting piece of information you found out about her? Oh, gosh. Look, I think finding the letter to Alice Springs that she'd she'd written um, from Central Australia, I think, was one of the most exciting finds. And I was the first person to read that probably since she'd written it. And I don't know, it was written to Elizabeth Lothian who of the Lothian Publishing family. I don't know if Lothian books still exist, but she was also a lecturer at Melbourne University. A lot of her friends were because if, if women did get professional jobs, they weren't allowed to marry. And so it really suited a lot of women that were perhaps asexual or lesbian that they, you know, or, or just wanted their freedom uh, achieved their own goals in life. I don't know how it came back to being Alice's cache of stuff, but I didn't know much about that trip. But it was a trip she took in 1926. She'd been running the garage for 10 years, and this was her idea of a holiday, to go on a trepid trip to central Australia where there were hardly any made roads, where it was hot in the day and freezing cold at night, And a baby Austin is tiny, tiny little car. And she bought it specifically um, because she did buy cars for her own garage to show for people in and to teach people to drive in and all of those things. But she bought this car specifically for this trip. And in those days, cars were still being imported. But what you imported usually was the the chassis and and the engine. And then you'd get a coach builder, of which Holden had established themselves as coach builders. They'd gone from building the horse-drawn carriage coaches to to building the bodies of of cars. And by the mid-1920s, there was enough steel post-war to go around that you could actually even have cars with that that, um, had solid tops on them, closed tops, whereas up until then, Everyone had the cloth hoods that you could pull back and, you know, pull over again, like what we would call a coupe now. So the, the baby Austin um, had, the, had the cloth hood and because they had to take so much for their trip and she went with her friend Jessie Webb, who was the first history lecturer at Melbourne University, who was 17 years older than her and a friend of the family, but a spinster. We're not sure about her sexuality. I couldn't prove anything there. So when you're writing a biography, you you can't make assumptions. You can suggest, but you can't make assumptions. Um, And she decided to, to build the body herself in her garage, and she didn't put doors on it because it was such a tiny little car that, and they didn't have boots in those days, and she had to take all the supplies that they could possibly need, including food and water. And so she had big packing sacks all on the running boards and wrapped around the back of the car, things strapped on with rope. The back seat was absolutely chock-a-block. So um, uh, that's, that's what she used to go to Alice Springs. But apart from that... I, apart from a couple of ad articles that were written before she left because she was in all the newspapers because it was going to be, she was a very good entrepreneur and she promoted to, to the newspapers as being the um, smallest car to ever travel this far into the desert in Australia because there were Aboriginal communities still living traditional lives in those days. They were still um, being rounded up, sadly, uh, but it was it was to to go into what was called then the never never was a huge risk and for two women 
to do it in a motor car that could break down where there's no garages to help you out. I mean, you only had to drive five minutes out of the CBD and you're pretty much in bush in the mid-1920s. I mean, the settler population alone was smaller than what we have in Melbourne today. There were only about five million white settlers. We don't know how many Aboriginal people because they weren't in a census in those days. And most of us were on the eastern seaboard. We clung to the coastlines and the, the, the big cities, Melbourne and Sydney. So it was such a dangerous adventure to go on and certainly not my idea of a holiday, an adventure maybe. So to have a letter written from Central Australia back to her friend Elizabeth Lothian gave me so much detail that I didn't have and I did a lot of research for that chapter that I wrote for the book and if it wasn't for that letter I wouldn't have known for example because her sister thought that she drove the baby Austin back home but she didn't she got to Alice Springs she'd achieved her goal and then for one reason or another she sold the baby Austin at Udnadatta and ended up trekking for miles with with camping gear taking the train some areas and staying at isolated homesteads along the way back and so I was able to bring so much life to that actual chapter and understand exactly where she'd gone and what she'd done I had a couple of photos but nothing much so so how would you describe Alice's personality she was super intelligent she was very cheeky probably slightly eccentric the whole family were very intelligent and quite eccentric, very different and interesting. All her family, you could rave about for, you could write books about each of the individual family members, really. She was incredibly, had this internal confidence. She didn't really care what other people thought about her. She just knew herself so well. And she did incredible things, even from an early age. She was about 10 years old when she decided that her baby sister, who was a bit sickly, wasn't getting enough milk because they'd had to walk a mile to to go and collect milk from this farm. So she decided the family needed a cow. And without telling anybody, she went to this farm. She left 15 minutes early to get to school every morning, didn't tell anybody why. She was stopping off at the farm and learning how to milk a cow. So then they could get a cow and she could have milk for her baby sister. So she really took charge with things. And there's this incredible story of when she was about 15 and I actually have uh, one of her sister's accounts of this. And this was her sister, Katrin, which was the next sister down and they were the closest together. They were real um, soulmates. And at this stage they were living well, they'd been living for a number of years in a bush cottage in Narbathong, which was really their summer cottage on their, what you'd call probably their country estate. But they were so poor for that by that stage, that's the only place they could live. And so they were almost living like pioneers. And Dad was, you know, taking the train to Melbourne to try and find work or going around to the various shires and trying to get work as a surveyor and things like that. And so they're in the middle of the bushland in Narbathong, which is in the Yarra Valley, about 16 um, miles as it was then from Healesville. There was a, it was a pouring rain one night and there was a mad knock on the door and this frantic man who was very drunk 
he was a woodcutter because there was, you know, that was the primary industry in those days. And he said that um, there was an emergency up at this old shack where this um, man was bleeding to death and he wanted to use their phone. Well, one, they had eventually got a phone, but it was out of order. But even then, to ring a doctor and to get them out there in the middle of the night, in the middle of the bush where there's no lights, I mean, there was no way that that was going to be successful. So Alice grabbed Katrin, they threw themselves onto one of their horses and went, rode to this shack, and there was a guy there that had, with a broken beer bottle, had his throat slashed and uh, there were a few other men there and they're all drunk and they're all crazy not knowing what to do. So Alice said, right, okay, if any of you got a needle, God knows why any of them would, I suppose they'd have to sew their own buttons on or something in a, in a crisis because I don't think any of these men had wives. If they did, I'd be very sorry for them. <laughs> they were as rough as guts. So she said, right, put the billy on, Katrin, pull some hairs from the horse's tail. And she boiled up the hairs from the horse's tail and sewed this man's neck up. And the next day he went to the doctor and the doctor said she'd done a pretty good job. Wow, that's incredible. I never would have even thought to to grab the horse's hair to sew them. Oh, wow. Well, she had been living like a pioneer for a while and her mother had been crippled in an accident where she'd um, she'd uh, torn her Achilles tendon. Nowadays you can fix that, but in those days you couldn't. So she was lame. The um, husband, father was away for a long length of the time, and Alice was an outdoors girl. I mean, she'd grab it. She was an avid reader, an outdoors girl. She'd be up a tree reading a book. She'd only come in for dinner. And um, Frankie, who was the eldest daughter, was the one that was really by her mother's side and used to sew their clothes and do the cooking and the ironing and look after the little ones and all of that. So she kind of got away with murder in a way. But also um, there was an older brother, Stuart, that did a lot of the work around the place. But, you know, if he wasn't around, it was Alice. So she learned how to shoot. They shot rabbits. Like one year they were snowed in. They couldn't even get to Hillsville or get any supplies. So they only survived because Alice and Katrin went out and fished in the half-frozen creeks and Alice shot rabbits for dinner. She'd do the fencing. She'd milk the cows. You know, she'd deal with the, all the animals, the horses, and that was her life. So, and she'd chop wood for the fire, all of that sort of stuff. And she was a tiny thing. She was just over... Well, she was about five foot two, so she was like maybe 155 centimetres, if that, and she was about eight stone, which is what, about how many kilos? That would be that would be not many kilos, maybe 48 kilos, but she was strong and she knew how to use her body, so she knew how to throw the axe, so the axe did most of the work. She was incredible, and someone actually said they saw Alice take an engine out of a car on her own. In those days, there were, the, the hood would be open from the middle. It would be sort of parted open and giant engine was left and centre and incredibly heavy. It usually would take two men to pull an engine out, but she just knew how to use her body in that way. So I think that kind of says it all, really, what sort of a person she was. She'd charm the pants off anybody. <laughs> Right. She had a great sense of humour. 
Yeah, no, she sounds she sounds quite incredible. Now she she did die at a very early age, and I, I certainly don't want to give the plot of the book away. But um, she managed to make some enemies throughout her career, didn't she? Oh, well, you can imagine the all-male garages weren't very happy with her at all. There was only one garage around the corner in Glenferry Road that um, was fairly friendly and respectful, but there was one garage particularly, and she was the first garage in that area in Cotham Road. So they would say she was muscling in on them, but it was really the other way around. And there was this garage that was diagonally across the road that had set itself up, probably not a couple of doors down from the cottage where she used to board. And they were awful. They did everything they could to undermine her business. They spread terrible rumours. We can only assume what those are, but there were always rumours of, of sexual transgressions and God knows what. So they were either too mannish um, and were unnatural or they were women and they couldn't do the job properly, you know, it, it, and that anything in between. So uh, she had to work very hard to keep people on side and that's where her entrepreneurial skills really kept her afloat, particularly when she started writing articles for Women's World magazine that was encouraging women to drive and teaching them about what to look for in their car and how to fix their cars because, as I said, you drive out of um, out of a city and you'd be on your own after that. There weren't garages dotted all over the place. There weren't properly made roads once you're out of the, the city. Even suburban roads were mainly gravel in those days. So you really had to know how to maintain and fix your own car if you were an independent woman not relying on a man. And not all men knew how to do these things either, but it was assumed that just men were mechanically minded. Uh, so she uh, she outdid the men and they hated her for it. No, there wouldn't have been any RACV roadside assistance back in those days. It was a totally... It was, <laughs> it was just starting up. It was in its very early fledgling days I think there were RACV people on motorbikes but in terms of you know you'd have to go and get towed in and things like that so if you wanted to have a little picnic jaunt you wanted to know how to fix your own car and that's where Alice had the strength because she was the only woman in Australia doing this on the scale that she was doing it with and going back to her being entrepreneurial, she was actually an inventor as well. And one of the famous things she was invented for at the time, because, of course, until I'd written this book, she was more or less written out of the history books deliberately by men that like to, you know. If she was a man, she would be front and centre in the history books, and that's the way it goes. But she invented what she called the get out and get under, which was uh, based on a song at the time that was very risque about this um, man wanting to make love to his lady and every time he would start get his motor running, then the car would break down and he'd have to get out and get under to fix his automobile. So, you know, she was cheeky that way, but it was basically fold-up board with a little uh, leather headrest on casters, which now we see in every garage where they slide under the car to be able to, fix things instead of putting them up on a hoist or whatever. So she designed it so that it could fold up and go in the back of cars, 
particularly for women, so they wouldn't get their clothes dirty because the roads were, if it was raining, it'd be muddy. If it was not raining, it'd be dusty. So you'd, you'd roll under the car and be able to work out maybe what was wrong with the car. But unfortunately, American businessmen wandered into a garage one day and actually saw this in action, raced back to the States, and because she hadn't painted it worldwide, it was a very expensive thing to do. A few months later, he was advertising what was called the Creeper and made an absolute gazillion out of Alice's little practical design. Wow. God, that's really interesting. Look, I must say I've read the book and it is one of the most interesting, one of the most fascinating books I have ever read. And good on you for bringing Alice back to life, keeping her memory alive. And now, would you like to give your book a plug? Where can we get it and what's it, what's it called? Okay, so it's called A Spanner in the Works, The Extraordinary Story of Alice Anderson and Australia's First All-Girl Garage. It comes in paperback form, which you can buy any shop online or any bookstore if you can order from a bookstore. These days, we all look forward to going back into actually browsing in bookstores once COVID's out of the way. It also comes in um, audiobook form and ebook form. So, really, if you just Google a spanner in the works, Alice Anderson, you'll find it wherever you'd like to purchase it from. And the, the paperback is $32.99 recommended retail price. Great. Oh, thanks so much for coming onto the program today. You're very welcome. It's been an enjoyable chat. To be speaking with Loretta Smith about Alice Anderson. And that's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway. 